0: I need to know everything, who in the what in the where, I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like just new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George, I hop in a Porsche, five on a horse, I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost, I need to know everything. Now you'd be surprised at the info you get
1: is... By hey everyone, I'm Ashley Asty and I'm curious, aren't you? I'm curious podcast brings the unfamiliar closer... I'm telling stories and sharing conversations with people who remind us that love demands we move toward justice and that we're all connected. This opening music is called Curious George by Nate Rose. All right, let's get to
0: it. Before we ever spoke, I'm ready for smoke. I need to know everything. Who and what and where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's know what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I happen to pour a Porsche, five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws. to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now, they ain't go harder than me.
1: They- I was having some fun with that opening music. It is a relatively new addition to the podcast. But now, uh, we're going to get into this episode that is just heart-centered. I'm excited for you to meet my guest, Keira Martinez. She's the founder of Love Without Borders for Refugees in Need. It's a nonprofit organization. I, I think it's an organization that Keira never imagined she'd stumble into, that she'd found and lead this. She's actually a full-time flight attendant based in Frankfurt in Germany. And the seed for this nonprofit was planted in her around 2015. Around this time, refugees began pouring into Germany, particularly refugees from Syria and Iraq. And so, as Kara was seeing this, she had this idea of essentially starting a coat drive, of collecting winter coats and warm clothing for these people who had fled from their homes. And she saw them essentially arriving with only the clothes that they left with. But you know, once you see something, it's hard to unsee it. And so, once she started seeing the people at the train stations in Frankfurt, she decided she had to dive in deeper, and she eventually decided to volunteer at a refugee camp in northern Greece. And she's not an artist by trade, but she kind of had this idea of bringing art supplies, crayons and art supplies to the children just to help them perhaps pass the time in a, in a place and moment in their life that was so challenging. But she realized that providing these art supplies for children, and eventually she'd do this for adults as well, in the refugee camps was so much more. It was healing and a form of expression after they had been through so much. And that's how Love Without Borders was formed. Today, the organization is involved in so many projects, including providing economic independence for people who are refugees, and I have a link to the uh, website in the show notes so you can go and check it out and learn about all the stuff that they're doing and how you can get involved. What I love about Kira, I mean, among many things, is that The sound of her voice is just so calm and soothing. And she's taken on the adventure of a lifetime, the critical work of a lifetime. She has said yes to countless challenges and countless families. And she has brought peace and hope to them, even if only one family at a time. Like I said, I'm I'm truly delighted that I get to share her with you. So with that, let's just jump right in. Well, Kayra, you are such a compassionate and fascinating person, and so I'm so grateful that you're here, and that I get to share space with you in this conversation.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me to, um, to be here. I'm happy to be here with you today, actually.
1: Of course. To get started, we're going to jump right in. I actually want to go back to 2015. Where are you living at this point? Uh, what's your life like? And what shifts that you start bringing your awareness to asylum seekers and thinking at first just wanting to collect items like warm coats for them?
2: Yes. So in 2015, I was based in Frankfurt, Germany, working with United Airlines. I have been living there about 20 years and working with United. And I was flying on my days off to other countries, traveling and really enjoying life. Extremely. I had the really wonderful advantage of being able to travel around the world for no costs. And so I really took advantage of that. And so in 2015, when the refugees started coming in, I started to get informed about the situation. And I went there and asked them how I could help. And they said they really needed clothing. So I organized a car full of clothes. And I brought it back uh, several weeks later and I asked them if they needed me to stay there and to help to distribute them. And they never let me go.
1: And and so where's Uh, there? Is this actually at a camp or is this still in Germany?
2: This is in Frankfurt, Germany at the uh, train station. That's where all of the refugees were coming in from trains and from Austria and other countries. And then they were getting separated and taken to refugee camps all around Frankfurt. And so that was my first taste of volunteering. And I do speak German, so they really needed my help with translation and, and time and just presence. And so every day off that I had, I spent at the train station. And as I started to get more involved and meet the people, that's when I started to travel to other countries. As I mentioned, going to Austria, uh, I went to Nicholsdorf which is on the border of Hungary and Austria. And I helped to distribute as well. And that's when I saw the people coming in uh, with their flip-flops and just exactly what they were wearing when they left their countries. And that's when I really realized how, what a big um, challenge this was going to be. And I never looked back. I continued to find more places that needed help and connect with other organizations.
1: Yeah, you it sounds like you're eventually making this choice to go into camps. I know you eventually go to camps in in northern Greece and housing communities there. Is it the thing where you have a moment where you almost like a revelation, like you have to go and do this and make this dramatic uh, sort of life shift? Or is it once you saw it, you just can't unsee it. And so it's, it's sort of unfurled like that.
2: Yes, actually, every day was more intense. Uh, The problems were more challenging. And I didn't think once about going back to that other life that I had built up for myself. It just made sense for me to be there. And it made sense for me to also take as many people as I could to get support. And that's when I started to create uh, my platforms on social media, Facebook pages, uh, getting our website set up. And it was really in the beginning, just my friends and my best friend's friends. And we tried to explain to the people what was going on and tried to also give people options to help us if they couldn't help financially just to send clothes. And that started out small, I think around 400 people. And then pretty soon, I think we're around 6,200 people on our group which is really wonderful because we have people from all different countries and walks of life.
1: Oh, that's, that's uh, nourishing and buoying to hear uh, in the face of, of all of this. I guess just to set the scene for people who don't know, when you go into these camps, so there are, people are coming in from on trains in, in Frankfurt, Germany, where are these refugees coming from for the most part and why are they displaced? So, The people
2: mostly at that time, that was in 2015, were coming from Syria and Iraq, and their countries were being demolished by bombs, and they lost their homes. Um, There were many people, like men, that were targeted to go work with the military, and if they didn't work with them, alongside them, they would get killed. So we saw a lot of men coming, but at the same time, there were lots of families Um, not a lot of single women alone, but families together. And so we, as I said, we just tried to help like one at a time as
1: much as we could. And I'm also wondering a lot of these men or even these families, is it typically from a certain economic group or these people uh, of a lower class or anyone is affected by this displacement?
2: Everyone is Mm -hmm. affected by war. Um, We had all as I said all walks of uh, people I've met lawyers and teachers and doctors and artists along the way Um, and I just realized I think that's something when I was you know meeting the people and getting to know them and understand them I realized it could have been anybody from my family Um, so yeah war affects everyone Mm,
1: okay For those of us us who have never been to a refugee camp, I'm going to ask you to just set the scene. What does it look like? And I'm sure it's different across camps, but at least the ones you worked in, about how many people are there? Just what does it feel like to be on the ground?
2: So the refugee camp in Kavala, which is in northern Greece near the Saloniki, that's where I worked for two and a half years. There were approximately 4,000 when I first arrived and approximately 1,500 when during the main concentrated time that I worked there. Uh, There, people were living in dilapidated tents set up by the UNHCR. They didn't have any cooking utensils or ovens the way camping cooking ovens initially. There was no school initially. Uh, It was the worst that you can imagine. No child, no human being should have to be made to live in a situation like that. There were military food distributions several times a day to get a ration of water, um, food for breakfast. I remember always being an orange juice and a croissant. To this day, when I meet some of my friends in Athens, you won't see them eating a croissant, you won't ever mm. see them eating pasta, because that's all they offered. Mm. Many times there were problems with the food uh, being um, off. And so that's when I started to create, and I came up with the idea to to do the art.
1: Yeah, and I want to ask you about that in a moment. I still want to stick to this. So you're, you're describing the situation, the tense sort of that lack of of food or or the same food over and over again. And is there a pervasive feeling? Is there fear? Is there uncertainty? Is there boredom? Because there's not a lot to do. What's the emotions generally of the people there?
2: Yes, during that time, I would say it was just very heavy, heavy sadness, heavy um, depression. Mm. And many people were worried about their families you know, that were in Turkey. I I remember meeting one family, part of the family was in Syria, part was in Turkey, part was in Greece, and part was in Germany. So many of these families were all separated. But I think worry and, you know, uncertainty, not knowing uh, was just really uh, overcame the whole camp. And initially, uh, you could definitely feel it. And it took some time for us to to go in and change that. But uh, there was a lot of despair.
1: Yeah, I I feel like despair, not that I was there, but captures it. Because these people are fleeing from their homes, have nothing. And then I don't even know how you have space and time to grieve when you're just trying to survive and hold your family together, which I guess brings us to art. What made you first think to bring in art supplies for children and and have them express themselves that way.
2: So because there were so many children and I figured that it would be fun for them keeping everything I do simple, I thought let's take in some paper and crayons. And it was really a moment, that awe moment as we Mm. say when you know the children are so quiet it's the first time that I had 15 or 20 kids around me and everybody was quiet and they were just so focused on drawing and they were really intense and and then I started to look around at the images that they were drawing and it was also really shocking because they were five years old and seven years old and they were drawing uh, boats that were upside down stick figures upside down from the boat journey that went from Turkey to Greece. And I know many of them were traumatized during that time. So I realized this was our way to communicate. They were speaking Arabic, I was speaking English. And at that time I couldn't even exchange a few words. Now they taught me a lot, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: but this was our communication. And this was also a way for the children to heal. And as I said, I have no background in art therapy. I don't claim that this is art therapy, but to have those children, just giving them those tools was the most powerful thing I've ever done in my life. And I just thought, okay, we're going to keep, keep art as our focus, whatever we do. And at that point, I didn't even know what I was doing. I was volunteering with other NGOs, but I didn't feel like that was my call. And then once I started this, I thought I wanna do this. And uh, I just kind of followed my heart from there.
1: What an amazing way to almost stumble into it. Cause like you said, you weren't, you didn't consider yourself an artist before this. And yet it was just sort of like what you do with children. Let's bring them a little bit of joy in these really despairing and sort of hopeless moments of their lives. And, and that's, you, you touched on this. I, I wanna amplify it for a moment. What I wanted to ask is essentially why art, right? So you're in this refugee camp, people need life supplies, medical supplies, safety, survival. What is it that art does? What what capacity does art have that nothing else has that uh, nourishes or brings healing in in these spaces?
2: Uh, That's a very good question. But for us, I felt like the art was a way for the children to communicate to, to pour their heart out, their story out. Many people tell their stories through art. It's a very powerful medium that we need to look more to in everywhere that we are. It could be used in, uh, with any children, with any person, I think, if they're open. And I think by giving people choices, number one, for instance, many of the woman, women that I worked with, they weren't allowed to paint in their countries. This is a freedom that we have that we don't even realize. And by giving a paintbrush to somebody with colors and a, a canvas and saying, you know, this is your freedom to be able to paint what you want. That's the first step to freedom. This is the first step to being able to share and to understand and to communicate with one another. Because those women who have been suppressed for all these years are able to tell their story in a very unique and different way. And the person on the other side is, has no words. You know, they see this art and it speaks to them in ways that we we can't even communicate with. And that's what our, we'll get to that later. But our pop-up art events around the world have done and have been able to help us to to allow the people to understand, to give voices to the people that lost their voice in these refugee camps.
1: I'm glad you brought up the women because that's something I wanted to talk about that. What seems like the simple act of offering art supplies, handing a paintbrush can be revolutionary to someone who didn't have the freedom to do that before to be set free, especially again in a space and a place in life that feels so dark and uncertain. So you, eventually expanded this from children to including the adults there too and we've touched on that you started creating workshops you're at first you know speaking a different language there are tents are you doing workshops in tents or are volunteers opening up homes how how are you hosting these workshops
2: so in the beginning i was doing them in the tents and i was trying to give everybody a chance so it was one family at a time really mm-hmm. And for some reason, I'm always very calm when I'm working because I realize there are thousands of people, but you can't change that in any capacity. So you just literally have to do one at a time, even if it takes you two and a half years, which it did. But, um, and then I rented an apartment about five minutes walking distance from the camp. And it was a good size apartment. And we organized bring 15 kids at a time with a couple sets of parents, and we would purchase all of the food at the day ahead of time. So the parents would be busy in the kitchen cooking traditional Syrian food, which is my favorite, by the way. And then I would work with the children. Sometimes I had volunteers that would help teach English and we would just play games with them or spend a little time with them outside on the, um, you know, in the park area. And then we would come inside and we would spend about an hour and let the, the children paint. And as I said, there are no uh, prerequisites for what people draw. We just let the children draw and just spend their time painting. And then each child would receive 30 euros for the painting. And that was an extraordinarily high amount of money in comparison to what they were getting so that their families could all buy food. Mm-hmm. And that's when we kind of solve the problem with those distributions, because people were buying their own cooking ovens, and they were buying their own ingredients, and they were cooking for their children and for themselves. And uh, I remember one woman told me, this is the first time in years that I've been able to cook for my child. Mm -hmm. And she was just cooking scrambled eggs, I believe it was. But it was just one of those days that was really meaningful. And it made me realize that this was the right path that we were taking to to do the art.
1: I love that. It feels like you're creating space for these families to have stolen moments of feeling like home, Uh, stolen from this, like, again, this uncertainty and whatever it is that's going on in their lives to just cook food that's theirs, that has a sense of belonging, a connection back to who they are, and I think that's so healing and, and perhaps overlooked. Do you have any stories or um, particular artwork that is memorable to you, something that you, someone created that uh, either stuck with you for some reason?
2: So the first adult that joined our project, he we never spoke words to each other because it was one of those busy, busy moments where uh, I was really in, um, involved in the situation and he was leaving the camp because the situation was so bad. And my translator, who was 14, told me that uh, this man really needed bus a bus fare for his family. His I think he had three kids and he didn't have any money and he heard about my project. He wanted to know if he could paint and then I would buy his bus tickets and I looked at him and he knew the people like the back of his hand. And he was this young man is, and we'll have to do a podcast just about him. He's amazing. But, uh, he, I looked at him and I said, Oh, we, we haven't started our adult projects. However, he goes, let's do it. It's time. And I said, okay, I trusted him a hundred percent. So we gave him six canvases and I think it took some months, actually, I was just that busy. It took some months for me to actually open the bag up and look at the art, but we got his bus tickets. We sent his family on his way to a different refugee camp and they were in a little bit better condition situation there. And when I finally pulled out the art, I I was speechless. It was so beautiful And he was obviously a studied artist. And I thought this is the most beautiful way to start our adult project. So we got a hold of him. And as serendipity always happens in my life, a volunteer was writing me at the same time, telling me that she was in Athens and how could I help? Was there anything Mm -hmm. she could do? And I said, yes, can you please get some art supplies to this man? This is where he is. And we were able to help support his family for over one and a half years Mm -hmm. until he was transferred to Switzerland. And I have a couple of his pieces of art that he gifted me before Mm -hmm. he left. And oftentimes we did a, a lot of sales for him and supported his family. But he always, and I thought this was the most beautiful gift, was that he always turned around and he would paint a painting and say, please, I want to donate this to Love Without Borders, Mm -hmm. because you and your organization have helped my family so much, and there's no other way I can thank you. He had nothing, absolutely nothing, Mm -hmm. and for me, that was everything, and it also made me realize that we were doing the right thing.
1: Oh, yeah. Like you said before, following your heart, following what's beating in your heart, You mentioned, of course, your organization Love Without Borders, and so eventually what started out is just, you know, you're sort of thrown into this essentially you go to volunteer the art supplies you start bringing them it turns into a nonprofit organization. And I want to ask you about this, just from the position of so many people I was actually I'm an an entrepreneur in, in a side life. And I was leading a workshop the other day on entrepreneurship and creativity. And I, there's always questions. People want the steps of like, how do you do it? How do you start something, whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit business? And I, one, I don't think there are always steps. I think it's listening to your heart and everyone's becoming is different, but also you don't need to know everything before you get started. And I feel like you took that to like the real extreme of just sort of. Flying through, like the expression flying by the seat of your pants, just allowing things to come in and and manifest that way. Can you describe that feeling a little bit of just letting it emerge on its own?
2: I will say I definitely wasn't like that initially. I was always searching for help. Like this person must be able to help me or this NGO in the camp. That's what they're there for. They should be able to help us. But we just never got the help we needed and no matter where I turn. And so finally I thought to myself, okay, let's go in, sit down with the people and listen. Let's let listen to find out what their issues are, what they need and try not to talk. Try not to give advice, try to just listen. And we're not good at that as human beings. We always feel like we need these answers straight away. And I think that's one of the most precious gifts that I learned. By doing this is once I stopped to listen, that's when everything turned around for me. And Mm -hmm. also people came into my life always every day writing me. Um, And it was exactly the time that I needed that particular person. So when I let it go, and when I just was calm and accepted the things that I couldn't change, that's when things really started to work for me because I wasn't let down. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't um detoured from every anything I just kept going and I started to make my own decisions Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and I'm lucky that in that situation and environment where things are a little bit more difficult if you're working under another organization that you can't make those decisions but that's one of the reasons that I decided to to do this is because I wanted things to become a little bit more efficient so that I could help thousands of people and not just one or two and so once we started to do that we came up with all of these different projects that I don't even have time to tell you about today but (laughs) that have been really wonderful and have created some wonderful stories from our our organization.
1: I want to underscore what you said about listening and and how we don't often listen um, because I think often the people who are closest to the situation, they're they're the ones who have the answers. We need to look look to them. And it it feels like this sense of almost like adventure, which is perhaps a wrong word to use in like a a disaster setting, but of just saying yes to the moment and allowing it to um, unfold on its own. One of the things that you do is you actually sell these paintings now, right? Because you provide um, money, like you said, to the artists but then you sell it, where where can people find these paintings?
2: So that's also a funny story. Um, But when we initially started the project, um, NBC got hold of the, um, the situation and they came to interview us because I work with a lot of schools in the United States trying to educate the children about the children that are not so fortunate And so NBC in Pennsylvania, it was did a story on us and with um, with all of the children and how they connected with the kids in the U.S. It was really beautiful. And after the NBC and the the big NBC Mm -hmm. got a hold of that, they came and interviewed us in in um, Nea Kavala, and that story was really. Uh, a big portion about how the organization just moved up a little bit to bring more awareness to people. Mm. And also, through that, I had people writing me for, all the way from China and from uh, Canada and all over Europe asking if I would come speak to their schools and their universities and their communities. And to each person, I said yes. And I Mm -hmm. think I have been to 109 events in the last years, um, (sighs) talking about this, my passion. And so from that one curator uh, in Newton, uh, Massachusetts offered to do our first exhibition. And uh, she did a lovely job, NBC was there. And after that, I did all of them on my own with the help of the local communities. And Mm -hmm. so we have created a global pop-up art exhibition until COVID hit, of course. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Um, So yes, it's it's been interesting trying to change it over to online, but we we're doing that slowly.
1: Because I know, I believe you have an Etsy shop too, that people can go to and and get some of the art.
2: Yes, we have an Etsy shop. And right now we have about 44 pieces, but we will be adding some more on there. And they're Mm -hmm. from adults and also children and all of the art has been created in Greece, and oftentimes I tell people we can't solve the refugee crisis, we can't solve the wars, but sometimes you can support one person, mm. and it's really good to be able to help one person and to purchase one piece of art to do that.
1: Yeah, it, be- it begins there, and I think you were talking about listening before. It sort of speaks to the idea of asking the questions and listening long enough to almost like linger into the answers, the way this is unfolded. And you know, like you said, how NBC came through and then pop-up art. Um, So just listening to that and listening to those little breadcrumbs and signs. You also said that your passion has become going into different schools across the world and speaking to children. Is there a particular message that you try to hit on with the children, whether it's a message of humanity or connection?
2: Yes, I always tell the children that it doesn't matter if you go to Greece to help the refugees over there, or if you try to do something local in your communities, as long as you're doing something positive in the world, Mm -hmm. and that can make the world a better place. If you can imagine one person always doing something positive to help one more person, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: we can really make it a beautiful world. And I think that sometimes it is overwhelming. And uh, to a lot of the university students that I spoke with, I think that they came back after my talks and they told me that. I I felt so overwhelmed and I don't know how I can help. And after you spoke, I feel better because I realized that we don't have to help everybody, sometimes Mm. just one person.
1: Mm. Yeah, Uh, you're providing this message of, it's in their hands too. There's a quote from Alice Walker, which actually comes from someone else before her. And I think it came from like uh, indigenous proper, but we're the ones we've been waiting for, you know, it's, it's not putting it off to other people, but we are the ones and we have the power to maybe just affect one life um, and create that ripple effect. The other thing I'd wanted to ask, and we're sort of touching on it here, the sense of we're all connected and the sense of community. And so when you're in these workshops and you're gathering family or children or adults together, is there something, uh, something that happens in the space of community uh, when we draw together, even in dark moments?
2: Yes. And how do I explain that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful because I think a lot of these people, they've been in their tents or in their apartments waiting on their asylum cases and nobody's reached out to them. And for us to invite their child to this event uh, to paint where they receive um, love, they receive, you know, art. And also, every piece of art is a masterpiece to me. So, we always compliment their art, and that brings out so much confidence. And, you know, I remember this little boy, he was probably, I think, five or six, and I told him, their, the family case was very extreme and it took them over three years to get out of Greece. Uh, but I remember telling him when he was little how what a wonderful artist he was. And I said, "You're the best artist in the world." And when he finally got to, to Germany and he wrote me after you know they had been settled there and he wanted to tell me that he had a closet and that he missed me, Um, but he did say, you know, I'm still the best artist in the whole wide world. (laughs) And, you know, it's, we need to, to support and lift up the people and they've, everything that comes their way is negative. And so by bringing them together and including them into a community, it's very powerful.
1: Mm. And you offered the gift of seeing him for who he is and celebrating him. And that's such a treasured thing that we don't always feel. And, oh gosh, the closet, just that he wanted to tell you that he has a closet. I'm like trying not to cry over here. Uh, (laughs) Does something give you hope? Have you seen families resettled? uh,
2: So throughout the last five years of doing this work, We've had the worst days and some days that everything's against us. But I never look at that. I always remember the days that a lady from Wales reached out to me to see if she could send us a box of children's clothes. Or I remember a lady from Germany that reached out to ask me personally if she could donate her mileage miles to me to pay for my flights because she knew I was paying with my own money
1: Oh wow!
2: or another German organization when we were in a really bad situation during coronavirus that said that they would help take on one of the families because they knew we didn't have funding anymore Mm -hmm. so I mean I could go on and on the people have come through like flying colors from around the world literally um, on five different continents we have friends and Mm -hmm we have been supported so much uh, that it's even hard to grasp sometimes when it's just the organization that i run has very few volunteers but we have people that come in our lives even for a short time to help us and then go out to do something else so that's what gives me hope
1: Mm, i'm i'm going to bring it back to alice walker again uh one of my favorite writers which is why i keep going there but she has this also awesome moment in one of her books where she talks about disasters and how the world you can look at it and it's wars and and pain and despair. And yet at the same time, in the wake of all of those things, there are all these people joining together to lift each other up and fight against it. And so you can look at it from either direction, but she also wants to look in the other side uh, of almost the same coin, the other side of the disaster, the people coming together. And I think that's uh, heartwarming, like you said, when you have these really hard days, to know of all the people that have reached out. The second question that I was trying to articulate before is, what has it been like during COVID? Like to have a pandemic happening while people are living in tents.
2: So it's hit our organization very hard, and when that happens, then obviously we don't have the support to to give this to the people. Um, in, in the tents. Uh, so for all of last year, uh, while I was on lockdown in Greece, we had a lot of ups. We had a lot of downs, and we try to focus on the few things, like a church from America that wrote to offer funds to support my voucher program. And so during that time, during the lockdown, we were able to meet the families very briefly give them vouchers and they took them to the grocery store and they were able to buy food for their families or the singles for themselves. And so always there's a little bit of a ray of hope, a little <laughs> bit of light. Um, we have not been able to do what we normally do, and that's just it. And with the art, it's, it, you know, we have our Etsy shop, we have some volunteers that are helping me, thankfully. But it's just, it's not selling like it used to. And we're just hoping that things will kind of uh, change and we're trying to get more online events created. Um, But it's, yeah, it's been a big challenge, I would say.
1: The last question that I wanted to ask you is, as of course you know, when you go out to serve other people and to help other people, often it comes around and, and serves you in some way too. How has this work and this experience and connecting with these people changed you?
2: I was lucky that I had those 25 years of traveling around the world, fine dining. And to me, that's something I'll never ever, um, that's a dream come true for me. But I think as we evolve as human beings, we have to ask ourselves, It's not all about us and we need to step out of our comfort mode and try to help other people because there's millions, uh, something like 70 million displaced people around the world. So I think as we evolve, we have to, in our lives, find something, a challenge to be able to make the world a little bit better. And so I feel that I found my calling and I think for many people, we're always wondering what, what is life about? I have massive challenges ahead of me that I don't know if I'll ever, you know, um, it's, it's going to be something that we'll I'll be doing for the rest of my life, but I'm fulfilled. I'm happy. Mm-hmm. And also I think the people that come into your lives because of this, uh, this is also something that's, you can never. Uh, Explain the friendships and the volunteers and the people that that are brought into your lives because those people, those are the true hearts in the world, and they have really shown me what life's all about. And just, I'm very thankful for for all those new uh, new kindled friendships that I found.
1: Mm. I just want to say thank you not only for what you do, but for who you are in the world. I I also want to add that I had uh, I just emailed you yesterday I reached out I said I came across your work would you you know would you share space with me for a conversation and you wrote right back and you're like I'm on a flight I'm going from Newark to Phoenix but I can catch you tomorrow and so that was really uh, special too that you sort of are like holding up the world in so many ways and also creating time to share and spread it Uh, so thank you for being here I really appreciate you
2: Thank you so much for having me. And I will add that also the refugees, they've also given my life a new meaning because I think the word refugee has such a negative connotation. But what I'm seeing is um, just a beautiful community of people trying to work together. And the resilience is amazing. And so I'm very fortunate to be able to do what I do.
1: And you said before something like, the, you're estimating around 70 million people displaced worldwide just to, i want people to sort of let that sink in for a moment because it's outrageous and almost unimaginable um i will have links to your website and the etsy shop in the show notes so everyone can check it out and, and get involved in their own ways um thank you thank you so
2: much it was really wonderful to <laughs> speak
0: I need to know everything who in the what in the where I need everything trust me I hear what you're saying but I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious George I hop in the Porsche five on a horse I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything now you be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk so I'm letting them talk gotta keep quiet maneuvering signs to let them and talk up their body another one body That's just how it go I got some secrets I'm shaking the game so they stay on their toes stay in your lane how to stay on the go I can not play with the and act like a rookie so they overlook me then i double up again of their nose none of them cold they just got lucky but never adapted so i'm to the one if it's coming to blows my enemies cutting it close i let them think that they got me but what do you know i had them beat before we ever spoke i'm ready for smoke i need to know everything who in the what in the where? i need everything trust me i hear what you're saying but i act like it's new what you're telling me i'm curious george i hop in the porsche five and a horse i'm ready for war i'm coming for throws.